and worship and song. And uh, I don't take that for granted, and I hope you don't either. It's such a, such a blessing. I really didn't know I was going to be doing a back-to-back, so to speak. I had looked forward to hearing Brother Greg live in person. Uh, there's nothing like being here and being in the body and fellowshipping with one another. And that's really why we have the church. Amen. It's to come together and to be one and learning to love one another, like one another, because we're going to spend eternity with one another. So uh, it's always a blessing. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Philippians chapter 2. And our text this morning is going to be verses 14 through 16. And I promise you, I didn't pick this, the Lord did. So we're going to hear what he has to say to all of us this morning. And, uh, but I can't start reading yet in verse uh, 14. I want to start in verse 9. I was going to start in verse 12, but uh, how can you bypass verse 9, 10, and 11? So let's look at this and see what the Lord has to say here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Everybody say amen. That is beautiful. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then our text, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your precious word this morning. God, I just pray right now that our lives would just be open and laid bare before you. And God, that uh, you would show us today as you look at us, and as you examine our lives, and God, you know who we really are, that God, you would... Uh, Reveal that to us. God, we want to see ourselves the way you do. God, that we might respond in a way that's appropriate and proper, that brings glory to you. So I just pray for that. I pray for the anointing on this place, the Holy Spirit. We welcome you here. and I ask you to, uh, to uh, do whatever it is that you desire and you will in this service. And I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I want to talk about this morning, and the message is about the sin of grumbling, the sin of complaining, and negativity on our behalf. And I use that word sin because it is a sin. When we talk about sin, most of the time as we begin to talk about those things that we know are sinful, whether we realize it or not or admit it or not, we usually classify sin. Not that God does, but we do. We tend to put them in one of two categories. We put them in major or minor categories. For instance, 
basically when we do that, we usually take those sins that we see as uh, more compelling and those sins that we see as carrying greater consequences and we evaluate those sins in our life and we realize that the consequences for those could be dire and it's something that God will deal with us and we know he'll deal with us severely. You could go to extremes in that category and use the sins of murder or rape. You could use the sin of adultery in our lives. And we know that there's going to be consequences for that, both with the law and in our family and our relationships as well. Then there's other sins that we tend to categorize as minor. Those that we tend to sweep aside, we give little thought to, much less this idea of repenting over those. Some of those might include anger. Some of them might include gossip or cursing. And we tend to put some of those and others in what we might call our minor category, where we just think about it, we know it's wrong, we sweep it aside, and we keep moving on. But one of the wonderful things about God and His grace and mercy is that God forgives. That there's no sin that we can commit in our life that God will, is not willing and just to forgive, the Scripture says. And that's one of the beautiful things about who our God is. And what He is, is that He's willing to forgive us, to, uh, to pardon us, you might say, and to restore us that we might walk with Him once again. But I also want to point out this morning that there is one sin that God is unwilling to forgive that he will not pardon, and that is the sin of unbelief. So if you're here this morning and you've never been saved, and you're living your life, and you're going about your life, and you're doing whatever feels right, you're doing whatever pleases you, and you're rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ, you've never come to him as Lord and Savior, you've never repented of your sins, then I'm here to tell you today that when your life ends and you're still living in that condition, make no mistake about it, it's not going to be okay. It's not all going to work out as the world would like to tell us it will. It's not all going to be glory and roses and not everybody's going to heaven. The Bible makes it clear that when we die in the sin of unbelief, when we reject and walk all over the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no redemption and there is no salvation and there is no forgiveness for that. So I urge you today, if you're an unbeliever, to run to Jesus. Right now, surrender to Him. Give your life to Him. Make Him Lord. Let Him be Lord of your life today. But for you and I today, those of us that's been saved, God forgives, including this sin that I want to talk about this morning, which is the sin of grumbling and complaining. Now, there's not a single person in here today, starting with me, that hasn't done this, and that doesn't fall into this, and that doesn't do this sometimes on a regular basis. We all find ourselves dissatisfied with events and things that's going on in our life. And as a result of that, our spirit begins to get negative. And when our spirit gets negative about everything, every event, every circumstance, or whatever it may be, before long we find ourselves griping, complaining, grumbling, the Scripture says. Each of us today, and I don't have to wonder, I know we're all guilty of that, some of us to a greater degree than others. Some of us in here today, you by nature are positive. You look at life through 
the glass is half full. You always look for the best. But even, and the, even though that is your nature, even though that identifies you and it's a characteristic of who you are, we all can fall into this sin of, of being someone who complains, someone who grumbles, someone who is dissatisfied. For some, it runs deeper than that. It even becomes a part of their character. It's just almost like by nature. They spend most of their life and most of their time negative. They gripe, they complain about every situation. They look at everything and they always see the worst in it. They always look at something and they see the glass as being half empty. It's almost like it's their testimony and it's the character of who they are. They struggle with all of this negativity that goes on in their life. They're the ones that walk in the room and Maybe it's a joyful thing that's going on in there, and they just suck the life out of the room. Y'all know people like that? I mean, they can bring it from up here to down here, and it doesn't take them very long just by their attitude, by their behavior, and what they have to say. Some of you may struggle with this. You don't want to be this way, but yet you find that's where you tend to dwell. You look at things negative, always seeing the glass is half empty. And as a result of that, others can't wait to get away from them. Amen or oh my. We don't want to be around them. They bring us down. We don't feel good. We don't like that. We don't like feeling this away. And so as a result, the joy of the Lord just seems to depart and it departs quickly. Well, whether you're in the first category or you're in this last category... The Word of God is making it clear here in verse 14 that we're not to do this. That we're to do all things, not some things, but all things, and we're to do those without grumbling and complaining. Now, it's an amazing thing to me that the Apostle Paul drops this verse right into the middle of a book about joy. If you read the book of Philippians, or you preach through it, and you study it, and you Sunday school teachers teach lessons on it, the overriding theme of the book of Philippians is about the joy in the Lord, the joy of Paul, and how Paul chose to be joyful in the midst of the, his circumstances and his events that's going on in his life. The setting and the context for this message is Paul is in a Roman prison. He's under house arrest. He has no freedom to go anywhere else. He finds himself in chains, and as a result of that, This Apostle Paul, he continues, though, to be rejoicing and joyful despite the circumstance. As he writes to the church here at Philippi, he wants to let them know that in spite of being in prison, in spite of losing his freedom, he counts it all joy. Yes, I choose, he says, to be joyful. I will rejoice in spite of my circumstances And in spite of the fact that I have lost my freedom. He is rejoicing and he is joyful. Why is that? Because he tells us there in chapter 1 of Philippians. He said the gospel is still being furthered. 
It's still going for, forward. No matter what my circumstance, no matter the fact that I'm in prison, no matter where God has sovereignly placed me, the gospel is still going forward. And as a result of that, I've had an opportunity, he says, basically, to speak to the guards. He is pre, he is, the gospel is going forward, and the Roman soldiers and the praetorian guards and even members of Caesar's own household are hearing the truth of the gospel. And as a result of that, meaning, are being saved. Paul understood that while he may be in prison, the gospel is not. While he may be chained up, the gospel is not. And so there's a lesson for you and I today as well that no matter what our circumstance, no matter where we are, whether we're locked up or we're not locked up, no matter what's going on in our life, the work of God is still going forward and the gospel of Jesus Christ is still being proclaimed. That can never be stopped. And so the Apostle Paul is in this setting. And the Bible tells us here that not only was, was Paul's testimony of joy and stuff and so forth and truth in this situation, not only is that true, but we also know that the gospel was going forward among the saints in Rome as well. He even mentions there that they have become more courageous and fearless in sharing the gospel. And the reason why that was true among the brethren in Rome was simply because they were looking at Paul, they were looking at his testimony, and they're seeing the joy of Paul even as he sits in prison. They're seeing the work of God through Paul and the ministry of God and the faithfulness of God in spite of the circumstances that he's living in. And as a result of that, they become even more courageous in Rome. And now they're sharing the gospel, the good news, even more fearless than ever before. Speaking the word of God without fear. All because they saw the testimony of this man Paul and they most importantly saw the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. God himself as he sovereignly provided for Paul. Now the context for what we're talking about today really falls in verses 12 and 13. And that's why I read them. Because Paul tells us there that we are to work out, continually work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Now when the Bible talks about working out your salvation, he's talking about the process basically of sanctification. It's growing in knowledge and wisdom. Growing in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's everything that goes on in our life from the moment that we're saved to the day that I die or you die and we leave this world to go to be with the Lord. It is the process of sanctification. It's learning to trust God in this life no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstances are. It's learning about reverencing God and knowing who God is and the sovereignty of God and how good God is and knowing that our God is faithful and no matter what happens, we can always trust God. All of that and more has to do with working out our salvation. It's counting it all joy that God allows and brings trials and tribulations into our life as well. Knowing the scripture says that God is using those things to mature us, to grow us up, to make us perfect, the scripture says, to grow us in the Lord. It's learning that and more when we talk about working out your salvation. And so when Paul talks about working out your salvation... 
And he talks about growing in the Lord and all that that involves. It's also directly, directly related to having a spirit of unity in the congregation, which this church needed as well. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says there, he desires that they should stand firm, this church in Philippi, in one spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2, that they be of the same mind, maintaining the same love. That they be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Chapter 4, verse 2, he urges two women there in the church, Euodia and Sintich, to live in harmony in the Lord. Evidently, there was a personal conflict between those two prominent women there in the church. And one of the ways that we can work out our salvation, and we know that God is working in us, and that God is working through us individually and as a body, is when there's a spirit of love and a spirit of unity and caring going on right here in the local church. I'm telling you, when you get a body in Christ and you get a congregation and we're striving with the Lord and we're striving to work out our salvation and we're growing in knowledge and wisdom and all of these things and we're learning to trust God together even more and more and our lives is filled with holiness, one of the byproducts, one of the wonderful fruits that comes out of that is a spirit of unity in the body, a spirit of oneness a spirit of being together. And one of the primary ways we can have this environment and this attitude in the church as well is to stop grumbling and to stop complaining about anything and everything. Instead, choose to love one another and respect one another and appreciate one another. You see, verse 12 and 13, especially verse 12 there, that's the behavior. Work out your salvation. Verse 14 is the attitude in which we do it. Without grumbling and without complaining. So in other words, we're not to complain about what God commands us to do. And we're not to complain about the events and the circumstances in which he commands us to do it. So let's look first of all this morning at this commandment. And I want to see first of all how it affects God. And we'll see that here in a moment. Look at verse 14. Do all things, do everything without grumbling. Your Bible may say complaining or disputing or arguing or questioning. You know, it's an amazing thing to me that we live in the richest country in the world. And we are obviously the most indulged country that the world has ever known. And yet I think the one overriding characteristic that really, really would describe us in America is discontented, dissatisfied. It's almost like the more we have, the more provisions, the more money, the more of everything that we have in our lives, it only serves to make us more dissatisfied, more discontented with our lives. I think in America, when we talk about the American way of life, you really just start with this word complaining complaining and I don't think there's an attitude in existence that really captures the attitude of our country right now more than complaining my goodness in the last few years everything in life has been filled with negativity and complaining amen I mean we can't get into a conversation that we don't start talking whether it's at work or in the church or wherever it might be that we don't start talking and complaining about the government complaining about our presidents, those in the house. And I'm as guilty as you are. We all are. 
We find ourselves in a negative, griping, complaining mindset. We gripe about the economy. And heaven forbid we get into politics. Because it just slides further downhill when we do that. We complain about taxes. We complain about our schools. We complain about the weather. Imagine that in Oklahoma. And so the whole society, right now, I think even more than ever before, it's just filled with a negative mindset. It's just this critical mentality, constantly attacking anyone and everyone who doesn't necessarily think or agree with the way I do. And what's true in society and in the world is true in the church as well. It's found its way into the body of Christ. You've seen it and you've heard it. Amen. I think going back to the message I preached two weeks ago, and I talked in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, about we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I went and gave you a bunch of illustrations about what it means to be conformed, to be squeezed into this world, to be pressured into acting like this world acts. In fact, I'll tell you again, this idea of conforming simply means that we're behaving outwardly in a way that doesn't really identify with who we are inside as a believer. But I believe that one of the ways in which we have truly conformed, maybe as much or more than any other way, is this attitude and this idea of being a grumbler and being a complainer. And always looking at the worst in life. Even though God has blessed us and blessed us greatly in the heavenlies and here on earth, no one is more blessed than you and I are today. Amen? Would you agree with that? Who has been blessed more than us? And yet we find ourselves conforming to the mindset and the, and the negativity that the world has. And it found its way in the congregation. We gripe and we complain. We find ourselves falling into this. We, we complain about the sermon. He's too long. He's too loud. He's too pointed. It's not practical enough or whatever it may be. We complain about the congregation. They're not friendly enough. They're not loving enough. You know, and you can go back to the age-old thing. The carpet's the wrong color. All kinds of things. When we fall into a negative spirit, nothing's ever right. And it's always wrong. Even though we know that's not the way we should be or the way we think. But who in the world are we to be complaining and griping about everything that doesn't go the way we want it to go? We as believers above all else should rise above that. And not fall into that kind of mindset. And frankly, I think part of the responsibility for this belongs in our pulpits today as well. Those of us who preach, those of us who teach in our Sunday schools. When you go in and you hear messages about man-centered messages that glorifies man, we, people walk into the pulpit, you can turn on the TV, and you can get all that you want of it where they're teaching these humanistic-centered messages where man is being fulfilled and it's all about man's self-exaltation and all of that kind of garbage that just really feeds our ego and feeds our flesh and it makes us even more dissatisfied and more discontented with our lives we hear preaching and teaching that exalts man and honors man and we become the supreme supreme being of the world and everything in life is to exist around me and for me 
And so as a result, when things don't go the way that I want them to go, when God allows circumstances and events into my life that are tough, when I have to suffer a little bit and life is painful a little bit, we complain and we gripe. And what this produces in our life, this humanistic preaching and teaching, and I see it everywhere and I hear it all the time. And it just makes my skin crawl. It's about God, not about us. Amen? And so as a result of that, we have no loyalty. We have no gratitude to God. Out the door goes our thankfulness. And we absolutely have no contentment. That's what that produces, that type of preaching and teaching. So we have a responsibility in our pulpits as well over this. Instead of having a grateful spirit, a thankful spirit to the Lord, we find ourselves living a life in a way that where we are not surrendered to God, where we're not contented and we're not grateful and we're not thankful. In other words, we've crawled off the altar of God and we're back living in the flesh. And I want you to understand something else this morning. This grumbling, disputing, complaining attitude that we see in society is a fruit of a deeper spiritual problem. There's more going on than meets the eye and it needs to be dealt with and it needs to be confessed and agree with God on it and it needs to be repented of you know even the Philippian church they they were a lovely church they were very giving I mean they were givers and they had a great spirit about them but they still had this problem uh, of complaining and griping and the apostle Paul is directing that you know they're mature in some ways and they've grown up in some ways but in this area of grumbling and complaining all the while they're doing it all the while they are uh, doing what God has commanded them to do um, as a result of that it was affecting their unity I firmly believe that's why the apostle Paul in chapters 1 speaking about the need for unity there in the church is because too many of them were complaining and griping even though they were doing what they should be doing. You know, all it takes is one person in the body of Christ with a negative attitude and an axe to grind and a complaining and griping spirit, and it can bring the whole thing down. You know, that's how churches split. I know you know that here. I know that in my church. I've seen it so many times, and so have you if you've been saved very long. They go to complaining. They're dissatisfied with their lot in life. They're dissatisfied about whatever. And as a result of that, this negative spirit just takes them over. And they tend to dwell in that. And instead of confessing it and repenting of it and getting right with God, it just festers. And out of that just comes some griping, grumbling underneath the surface, some complaining. And then you've got those that, who will join in with them. And began to go along with that. And old sand birds of a feather flock together. You know, when someone starts doing this, there's those that will turn away and walk away, but there's those that will run right to them. And they began to complain, and they began to gripe, and it just turns into one big negative situation, one type of spirit that's going on. And before long, what you find is, is a church that no longer has any unity, and as a result, there often is a split. We've seen that, I've seen that, and you have seen that as well. 
So the Apostle Paul wants the church at Philippi not only to be externally obedient, but to be internally obedient. He wants them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. That's with a reverence towards God. But not only does he want them to do that, he wants them to do it with that right attitude. Not with this spirit of grumbling and complaining. God is not pleased with our lives when we're doing this. It is sinful. And it needs to stop. And just as the Apostle Paul says here, do all things, do all things without grumbling and without complaining and without disputing. Now, when this happened, God does respond. It's not a minor sin. I, I would say when we first think about what I'm talking about this morning, most of us would slide that in the minor category. Why? Because it's everywhere. It's around us all the time. But that doesn't make it right. It is a major sin. And if you look into the Word of God and what He thinks about this and how He views it, you don't have to look past the Old Testament in Israel. And you see how God responded when the congregation began to do that. Started by, obviously, one individual. When you look in Exodus chapter 15 and 16, we see the children of Israel. They're in the wilderness there. God has brought them and one of the great miracles recorded in the Bible, they've been brought through the Red Sea. He has delivered them from their enemies. He has heard their prayers and their cries over the years. And God has sent Moses, and he has uh, used him to deliver them from bondage, bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. He's established them as a nation. And in chapter uh, 15 of Exodus, they are three days removed from that event of crossing the Red Sea. And the Bible tells us there that they're traveling and the people began to be thirsty and they wanted water. And so they traveled to a place called Merah where the water was there, but the water was bitter. And it was too bitter for them to drink. Moses records their response in chapter 15, verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Moses, we're thirsty. What are you going to provide? We need water. They grumbled. They began to complain against Moses and against those that were in spiritual leadership that God had appointed. So God is gracious and God is merciful and God responds. He has Moses throw a tree into the water. God does a miracle there and what was bitter water becomes sweet water, drinking water. And so the people get something to drink. And God is good, and God has answered their prayers. Then you fast forward to chapter 16. Now they're 30 days removed, plus somewhere around 30 days since the parting of the Red Sea. Now they're hungry, and they're wanting bread, and they're wanting meat. In chapter 16, verse 2, this is what Moses says in describing their attitude. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to, uh, to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Can you imagine that? They are 30 days, one month removed from God's provision. 
leading them through the Red Sea, and now they're complaining again about being hungry and complaining because God has not provided and Moses has not provided any meat. In fact, their attitude is, we could have stayed in Egypt and just died in Egypt if this is what you were going to do. We could have stayed there and at least had something to eat, and we could have died in Egypt. But what does God do? I'm so thankful He's gracious. He is merciful. And the Bible tells us that God responds there by sending bread in the morning and manna in the evening. And he, pro he provided for them what they needed to sustain them. Then let's fast forward again to Numbers chapter 16. There's a rebellion going on in the camp. There's a man by the name of Korah. And Korah really would like to be a priest. And he's challenging the authority of Moses. He's challenging the authority of Aaron. And he's not willing to submit to that authority because he thinks he should be one of them. That he should be someone that God is using as well as a leader. And so Korah has a negative mindset, a negative spirit. And he begins to gripe and complain. And he has a, leads, begins to lead a rebellion. And as I said a while ago, birds of a feather will flock together. And out of that uh, complaining and negativity and the rebellion of Korah comes 250 very influential followers in the nation of Israel. So there's 250 men that are with him. And as a result of that, they come against the leadership and do an uprising against Moses and Aaron. But the Bible goes on, and this time God brings judgment. And the Bible says God judged Korah and the other 250 he sent all the rest of Israel to their tents and they stood outside and they watched what was about to happen. God opened the ground and all 250, including Korah, were covered over by the ground. God brought judgment. He brought death. And the people are watching this. And I wish that was the rest of the story, but it's not because if you read on, they continued to complain. Now the people, after watching that, are complaining and griping about Moses and Aaron causing the death of these people. So they continue to complain. And what does God do? God responds once again. He sends plagues. And before it gets stopped, 14,700 more die over the sin of grumbling and complaining. God judged Israel's sin by sending plagues and diseases and even death. And don't think he won't judge ours as well. We're no different than Israel. I think a passage in Psalm 106, verse 24, really sums it all up best about them. He says, they didn't believe his word, but grumbled in their tents. They didn't listen to the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he swore to them that he would cast them down in the wilderness and that is exactly what God did God judges this sinfulness God will judge our grumbling and complaining now fast forward into the first uh, into the New Testament and if you go over to the book of first Corinthians God has something to say through Paul to you and I today living in the New Testament era in the New Testament church he is writing this book, obviously, to 1 Corinthians. I've preached a couple of times through that book. Never was there a church with more problems and more issues than the church at Corinth. Amen? 
There was a lot going on in the church. A lot of things that dishonored God that needed to stop. And Paul is preaching about those things. And then he comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul is still addressing all of the sinful issues going on in the body of Christ. And this is what he says to them in verses 7 through 10. He says, talking about Israel as an example in the Old Testament. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor are we to commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor are we to put the Lord to the test or question God, as some of them did and were killed by the snakes. Verse 10, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer, the angel that destroys the angel of death. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God judges sin, and it's to be an example for you and I in this day and in this age. This is an example of how God views the sin of grumbling. Notice he mentions several there. He mentions idolatry, which we struggle with, sexual immorality. He mentions testing God, questioning God. He mentions grumbling there. All of those things going on in the church at Corinth, going on in our churches today. And what happened to the nation of Israel was to serve as an example to us individually and as a body how God feels about sin and what God's willing to do to stop it, to end it. So what we might call a minor sin today, not a big deal, is a big deal with God. It's important we not do this, that we not fall into this. When you go to your job, don't fall into this. Don't do this. Don't agree. Don't join in on that. Don't have that kind of spirit. You ask the question, I'm sure maybe you're thinking this, and I'm going to address it. Why does he do this? Why is this so important to God? Why does he discipline his people so severely when it shows up? Because the reality is we are disputing with God. Whether you realize it or not, when we grumble and when we complain about our lot in life, we're attacking God. That's what we're doing. He takes it personal. We're attacking his sovereignty. We're rejecting the sovereignty and the providence of God over our lives. We praise God. We lift God up in our prayers and in our songs and about how wonderful the sovereignty of God is and how gracious God is. And we're so thankful for God's providence and how he's working all these things out in our life to our good and his glory. And we honor him with all of that. But then we turn around and we complain about the very circumstances that God has allowed or caused to come into our life that we might be benefited. And when we do that, we're attacking God. We're rejecting and complaining about his sovereignty and his providence over our lives, whether we realize it or not. And God will not have that. We're complaining about God, and it's a lack of trust on our part. God, I'm not trusting you to run my life. God, do you really know what you're doing? I can't believe you allowed this to come into my life. 
God, I can't believe my health is the way it is. And whether we realize or not, we're blaming God. And we're attacking God in His providence. And it's a failure to trust God, and it's a failure to submit to His providential will. A willing, unwillingness to submit and surrender to His plans and His purposes in our life. If I were to ask you this morning, what's what some of your favorite scriptures, your favorite verses? Most of you in here, would one of them would be probably Romans 8, 28. Amen? Everybody knows Romans 8, 28? Everybody loves Romans 8, 28. Because it's so comforting to each one of us. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Do you believe it? You say, yes, preacher, I believe it. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe God is taking every event that comes into your life, every circumstance, and that he's going to work good out of that? Yes, I believe it. Then what do we have to complain about? Do you believe it? If we really believe Romans 8, 28, no grumbling. No complaining because things aren't going the way I want them to go. No complaining about my lot in life, what's happened in my life. Is God going to use everything according to my good and according to his purposes and he's going to bring good into my life? Do I believe that this morning or not? Is his plans to prosper me or not? God has no plans to harm any of his children. So I say to you this morning, let's don't say we believe Romans 8.28 if the character of our life and the content of our life is we are griping and complaining and negative about everything that God allows, every event, every circumstance that we find ourselves in in life. This is one of the hardest things I think to do in all of the scripture. Amen? There's nothing easy about this. And it takes a life that is sacrificed a life that is living on the altar to do this because we so easily fall right back into the gripe and the complaining and the grumbling because we're suffering. And yet the Word of God tells us that, it, that we will persevere, that we will endure no matter what comes into our life, no matter what God allows to come into our life. But God hates this in our life and he's serious about it and what happened in the wilderness there in the old testament is an example to you and i living on this side of the cross that god judges this sin and he does so harshly i want to close this part right here using a scripture from lamentations chapter 3 verse 39 two little lines there that's really profound why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? I mean, who are we to complain when we look at our sins? When we look at how sinful we are and what it cost our Lord to redeem us, who in the world are you and I to complain about God in any circumstances that he causes or allows to come into our life? What do we deserve, brethren? 
We deserve hell. But what have we been given? Grace and mercy and compassion. So we see the commandment and how it affects God. And then secondly, the commandment and how it affects my testimony. Look at verses 15 through 16. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. There was a man driving a car, and a woman was driving another vehicle, and she had pulled up behind him, and they were at a stoplight. And uh, the man sitting in front, the light turns green, and I guess he's got his head down, and he's looking at his phone, maybe he's texting, and he doesn't go. And he just continues to sit there, so she begins to get a little bit angry, and she starts to honk her horn. The light's still green, and he's still sitting there. No response. He's not looked up. He's not acknowledged her in any way. And so now she's really beginning to get angry, and she really starts laying down on the horn. And uh, still nothing. No response from him whatsoever. And suddenly the light turns yellow. And then while it's yellow, it's about to turn red. And all of a sudden, he looks up and sees what's happening, and he just zooms across the intersection. Well, she is losing her mind now. She is in full-blown road race. She rolls the window down. She sends him a message with a single finger that I don't need to go into. She's cursing. She's ranting. She's raving. She's hitting the steering wheel. I mean, she is in full-blown road rage. And all of a sudden, she looks up in the mirror, and she sees a policeman behind her car, and he's got his weapon drawn, and he's pointing it at her. And she's still got her window down, and she says to her, he says, Ma'am, lady, put both hands out the window, open the car door, and exit the car, and do it slowly. And so she does. Now she's afraid. That rage has turned to fear. She gets out. He puts the handcuffs on her, puts her in the car, takes her to jail. She's been sitting there in the jail for a while, about a couple of hours, and she looks up, and she sees that same officer coming down the hall, and he's got some keys. He begins to open the door, and he opens the door for her, and he lets her out. And he says, Lady, I, I just got to explain myself to you. I'm really sorry for the misunderstanding but I really need you to know uh, what was going on there. I really need you to understand why I, I uh, arrested you. And she says, well, I'd like to hear this explanation. And he says, well, I was looking at your car, and uh, I noticed the what would Jesus do sticker on the back. And he said, right next to that is the little chrome fish. And he said, I thought, well, I need to check her license. So he looks at her license plate, and he says, I see your follow me to Sunday school license plate holder. And lady, I've just got to tell you, I was absolutely convinced you had stolen that car. <laughs> Listen, this is our testimony. Amen? Our behavior is our testimony. It's incredibly important that, as Ephesians 5.1 says, that we be imitators of God, not of Satan, as beloved children.
And when we find ourselves talking this away and with this kind of an attitude and this kind of a spirit, when we go to work and we join in and we're doing all these things and we fall into that mindset and we just go along with all that's going on there, what we find is, is it absolutely kills our testimony. It just destroys it. And so Paul says, rather than doing that, look, here's what you need to be. We need to be blameless. Notice those there. Blameless. Blameless simply means a life that can't be criticized. It's to live a life above reproach. It's to live a life in such a way that you can't point to evil and sin and wickedness in my life. You can't point to those things as an unbeliever and say, well, he's not really what he says he is. What he says is, is meaningless. We're to be blameless. That means without blemish, no sinful stain, no blot, which people can see and pass judgment on. That word innocent there could be translated harmless or simple or pure. Paul says that we're to be innocent, we're to be simple, we're to be harmless when it comes to sin. And he's using two basic words here in our text uh, for us that our life is to be above board, above reproach, so that we cannot be criticized for this sin. And the character and the conduct of our life should line up with someone who is blameless and someone who is innocent. It is the essence of living a life above reproach, which means above criticism, above fault, spotless. It reminds me of the sacrifice we were talking about in Romans 12.1. It's a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable, logical service or logical worship. You see, a blameless, innocent life that's lived above reproach, that is exactly the kind of life that God requires, commands from each one of us. And it's the kind of life that testifies to our salvation. Salvation is not spoken, it's seen. And it's evidenced. And we're to do it, verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I can't think of better words that describes this world that belongs to Satan. A crooked and perverse nation among whom we are to appear as lights. It's a world that's crooked, twisted, and perverted means it's really twisted. There's an emphasis going on there. Notice, and I wrote down here Judges 17, 6, because it captures the mindset. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the unsaved world. They're just doing whatever feels right. Whatever seems right, that's what they do. There's no truth, no absolute truth in their life. And they reject the absolute truth, which is the word of God. Their truth, what is right, what is wrong, is determined by the culture, by the environment, by the latest flavor, whatever that is, by their own ideas of what's true, what's not true, what's right, what's wrong. And so they live their world in a relative truth without the existence here of absolute truth. It is the spirit of this age, this world, that says fornication, sex outside marriage, is right. If it feels right, just do it. Adultery is right. Homosexuality is right. Lying is right. Cheating is right. Abortion is right. 
but not the Word of God. It rejects the Word of God as absolute truth, even though it's sovereign, it's timeless, and it is absolutely true in a world of untruth. So we're to be a light that shines in a world that's crooked and perverted, both by what we say and what we are. We're to let our light shine, amen? We're to be a testimony. We're not to act like the unbelieving world acts. God has saved us and redeemed us for so much more. And when we grumble and complain what we have to say to others about Jesus is really meaningless to them. Nobody wants to come to a God that makes us so miserable. Amen? If that's our attitude, who would want that? Why would they do that? You can't be talking about the gospel and forgiveness and joy and peace and mercy and all these things all the while mumbling and groaning and complaining all the time. Or they'll reject it. They don't want to hear it. It's meaningless. That's why one writer said this. He said, show me your redeemed life and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. How true it is. And thirdly and lastly, I'm going to wrap it up. Let's look at how the commandment affects our spiritual leaders, our shepherd. Paul says, so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason and glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul wanted to know that what he was doing was not going to end in vain, that it was not all going to be meaningless. That all the effort, all the ministry, all the work that he had poured into the church at Philippi, it was his uh, prayer that it not be in vain. That he might be rewarded for his labors. In other words, he was simply saying there, if you'll obey this command, I'll be happy in the day of Christ, and I'll look back on my life, and I'll say it's all worth it. That I did not suffer, endure, and toil, and work for no reason. That it was worth it, church. It was worth it, Philippi. You see, Paul's greatest uh, joy in life was to glorify God. And he knew that one of the ways he could most glorify God was by making a difference, by being an effective servant for the Lord, that he might lay up riches and treasures in heaven that he could lay at the feet of Jesus. That's what really mattered to Paul. And what's true of Paul is true of our pastor as well. You know, you can never go wrong taking your pastor to eat or your t Sunday school teachers that pour into you, taking them out for a meal. You, we can really bless them that way. As I said, he and I had the opportunity to do this here a while back, and it was such a blessing. We turned a 30-minute, one-hour meal into about four hours. And uh, I'm, I'm sure Sammy Joe wondered if I was ever going to bring him home. But we had such a good visit and good time. And all of that is important, and all of that is necessary. But I want to tell you something today. As a former pastor, I can just tell you today, this is true. The most wonderful, greatest thing you and I can ever do for Brother Greg, who has poured into each one of us, has served and served faithfully, 
brings the word every week, and it's the truth. The greatest thing that you and I can do for him is what the Philippi church, Philippians church, could do for Paul, and that is simply this. Live out what he's teaching you. Listen to it. Eat it. Bring it in. And do it. Live out everything you've been taught. That's true for him. That's true for your Sunday school teachers as well and anybody else that's poured into your life. Nothing ever brought me more joy than to see someone that I had invested my life into, my time, my efforts, to watch them grow in the Lord, to just hear it in the way they talk and to see it in their life. It brings such joy, such blessing. And what's true of me, I'm sure, is true of him as well. To, not, to know that what I'm doing wasn't wasted, that I didn't toil in vain. It's incredibly important. So I finish today with this. Don't be a negative Nelly. Don't be a griper and complainer. What have we got to gripe about? Do we really believe God's working all this to good in our life or not? God is so good. He is so good. And he is the sovereign one. Whether we recognize it, admit it, embrace it or not, he's still sovereign. And his providence is still at work. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again for your message to us this morning. Difficult, hard. Uh, guilt runs all across the room, starting with me. And uh, Father, I just uh, I thank you that you're merciful and compassionate and you forgive and you strive with us and you put up with so much, God. And I also thank you, though, that you chasten us and you discipline us because it's what's best for us. And you always desire good in our life. And I praise you for that. I thank you for this congregation this morning. I know there's so many here today that's uh, lit really, truly uh, working out their salvation. And they're doing it in fear and trembling. And they're growing in sanctification. And God, I know they love you. And I know they have knowledge and wisdom. But God, I pray for them today and I thank you for them. God, for those who struggle with this issue of negativity and complaining, Father, I pray for them today as well that, God, that there would be a change in their life, that you would open their heart, that real repentance would come, and, God, that they would walk in a new direction. God, just glorifying you everywhere they go, that their testimony would go forward. There'd be a light that shines in the world. I pray that for them, pray that for me and everyone else in here, God. We love you and praise you. Jesus name. Amen.